Hello, and welcome back to All Swell, the student-led podcast of the Coastal Society, produced by the American Shoreline Podcast Network. This is Nora. Hello again, your host this month from the Duke Student Chapter of the Coastal Society. Thank you for tuning in. Today, we're exploring the future of aquaculture in North Carolina. The state recently put forth a goal of growing shellfish aquaculture into a $45 million industry by 2025, with a focus on oysters. And the North Carolina Oyster Blueprint that was released last year also included protecting water quality and restoring living shorelines within that economic goal. So what exactly does that mean and how do we get there? I'm thrilled to welcome three scientists from Duke University's Marine Lab to explore these questions and talk about all things oyster aquaculture today. We're joined by Dr. Carter Smith, a postdoc in the Silliman Lab specializing in habitat restoration to improve coastal stability and resilience, PhD student Robin Fail from the Murray Lab, focusing on the intersection between social science and public policy, and PhD candidate Laura Givens studying eDNA in the Marine Molecular Conservation Lab with Dr. Schultz. I've got to say, this is a really cool lineup, and I'm so excited to have this conversation with the three of you. Thank you for being here. I'd love to hear more about each of your individual research, but before we do that, let's hear a brief word from our sponsors. The American Shoreline Podcast Network and CoastalNewsToday.com are brought to you by LJA Engineering. With 28 offices along the Gulf Coast, the folks at LJA Engineering are at the top of the craft in the areas of coastal restoration, coastal infrastructure, rivers and channels, numerical modeling, disaster recovery, and design and construction oversight. Be sure to subscribe to the Coastal News Today Daily Blast newsletter at CoastalNewsToday.com for daily updates on the events and news that shape the coastal discussion. Want to support the discussion and promote your company? We have sponsorship packages available now. Email me to learn more at chloe at coastalnewstoday.com. That's C-H-L-O-E at coastalnewstoday.com. Hope to hear from you and enjoy the show. I'd love to kick us off by hearing a bit more about Carter's research and the work you do with Living Shorelines. Hi, Nora. Um, thank you so much for having me. Um, so like you said, I'm a postdoctoral researcher at the Duke Marine Lab, um, and my research is broadly really interested in coastal ecology and especially restoration science. So I'm really interested in coming up with creative solutions for restoring ecosystems that can benefit people and also benefit the environment. Um, and so one particular focus of my research in recent years has been on living shorelines. And so living shorelines are coastal protection techniques that involve habitat restoration for the purposes of reducing erosion or protecting against storms, but they have all sorts of awesome um, co-benefits for the environment and for people. Sweet. Thank you, Carter. Um, maybe we could popcorn over to Robin and hear more about your social science research and how you came to the Murray Lab. Sure. Yeah. Thanks for having us, Nora. Um, I came to the Murray Lab with an interest in how public policy can think about socio-ecological systems and how we can be better at integrating people's values and beliefs and the sort of institutional makeup of our societies into policymaking that uh, also considers the environment and how we can be beneficial to, to all parties. Um, and that relates to aquaculture in terms of its contribution to our food systems. And I'm approaching my research in thinking about 
socio-ecological dynamics of food systems and how we can make them both resilient and sustainable and provide food that people want to eat in ways that uh, are, are manageable to the environment over time. And so that's what I'm thinking about as I look at aquaculture development. Thank you. It's really cool to hear about food systems and how that plays into oyster aquaculture. Last, but certainly not least, we have Laura. Please tell us more about your research in molecular biology. Thanks. Yeah. So my research broadly uses recent advances in molecular techniques and technology in order to look at biodiversity and communities in aquatic systems. And so right now that's focusing on a lot of oyster areas, such as restoration and aquaculture. And so I'll be looking at some of those resiliency aspects and whether there is a biodiverse community around these habitats. Cool. Really interesting advances in technology being used. Thank you, Laura. Um, So I'd love to loop back to Carter with my first question. Could you tell us more about Living Shorelines and how you use oysters in that work? Sure. So Living Shorelines is really an umbrella term that encompasses a whole variety of different coastal protection schemes um, that combine habitat restoration, either just restoration on its own or restoration with some type of gray infrastructure. And so depending on where you're trying to build a living shoreline in the world, if oysters naturally occur in that area, then oysters can be a really important component of that restoration project. Um, And in particular, oyster reefs are really good at protecting against erosion, at slowing wave energy, and at protecting marsh that's landward of the oysters. Um, So one of the ways that we use um, oysters for living shorelines here in North Carolina and throughout the rest of sort of the southeast coast and also throughout the Gulf Coast um, is that we often restore oyster reefs in conjunction with salt marsh um, because it helps to add an extra protective layer for that salt marsh. So if you're trying to restore marsh plants in an area that has really high wave energy, or maybe the marsh wouldn't be able to exist on its own by also adding that oyster reef um, and harnessing sort of these biological partnerships between oysters and between salt marshes, um, we can actually restore salt marshes in areas where they wouldn't otherwise be able to be restored. Super neat. Um, So I, I, Pulled out from that that you, that you can use oyster reefs to with uh, wave attenuation. Um, are there any other ecological services or benefits that you want to highlight from using oyster reefs in living shorelines? Definitely. Um, so, like really any coastal ecosystem, we as humans get a whole variety of benefits from these ecosystems. And so for instance, oyster reefs, as I mentioned, can be really good for coastal protection. Um, They can also have all sorts of benefits for water quality. Um, So oysters are really good at filtering um, water. They can filter huge volumes of water in pretty short amount of times, depending on how many oysters you have. Um, So they can improve water clarity and they can actually pull out um, some toxic Um, things in the water or excess nutrients that are in the water. Um, Oysters are also, or oyster reefs are also really valuable for um, fish nurseries. So there are a lot of juvenile fish and crustaceans that like to spend part of their life cycle sort of living in and around oyster reefs. And so there's also a potential benefit down the line there for recreational and commercially important fish and crustaceans. 
Uh, so it's really attacking it from all fronts, if you will, like water quality, nursery habitat, wave attenuation, restoring seagrasses. Neat. Thank you, Carter. Um, moving on, to, uh, Robin, I'm curious, like from your social scientist perspective, what do you foresee in terms of potential impacts of growing the oyster aquaculture here? So looking at that food systems aspect, good or bad? Yeah, it's a good question. Uh, so I think that there can be a pretty wide variety of social impacts depending on how it's done. So there are uh, certainly good and bad impacts that are possible from the growth of oyster mariculture. Um, I think that the, the positive impacts can be a number of things Carter mentioned as far as the ecological impacts of building healthy oyster reefs. Um, they can also include increased access to food, more seafood produced in a manner that is ecologically sustainable, um, and certainly opportunities for job and economic prosperity within the state where these farms are located. Um, and in North Carolina, we see that the state's agenda for aquaculture development is, is pretty centered on economics and, and job opportunity. And that's great and, and very possible to achieve. And there's a lot of interest in growing a tourism industry surrounding oyster aquaculture. And I think that that vision is achievable. Um, but I think there's also a lot of concern if we overlook how privatization of public water might impact people's relationship and access to that water. And so I know that there is historic conflict within North Carolina from uh, commercial fishermen, recreational fishermen, and subsistence fishermen, all of whom are worried about the impact of leasing swaths of water to growers. And there are a lot of implications for what it means when publicly available water becomes privatized in that fashion. So these thoughts about user conflict and how people relate to space matter. And in the 90s, there was an interesting case in the core sound in North Carolina where clam leasing was about to start and the fishing communities there really came out in protest and described those waters as not just important for their families and their food, but they described it as a sacred landscape. It was a place that they really connect to on a spiritual and cultural level. And the uh, process of commodifying and privatizing that water felt deeply meaningful to them. And so I think there are a lot of layers of human well-being beyond sort of the economic gain uh, in the state that we need to be considering as we grow the industry. Wow, thank you. That's so fascinating thinking about synthesizing all those different aspects when performing a social impact analysis and assessing that way, you know, you have the economics, of course, but also thinking about growing tourism and historical context, historical past conflicts, really interesting, and even a spiritual aspect to it. Can you speak to the work the Murray Lab is doing for the North Carolina Sea Grant? Are there any preliminary findings you can share about the future of oyster mariculture in North Carolina? Sure, yeah. So uh, the Murray Lab and team has been doing a project for a few years now for North Carolina Sea Grant that we refer to as the Seafood Values Project. And that project is looking at 
how people in North Carolina, what their values, attitudes, and beliefs are about aquaculture. And, and really, it's looking at consumer perceptions of wild-caught versus farmed seafood and trying to understand what it is people value about aquaculture and then what sources of social concern exist. And the survey has been really interesting. So far, we've done a general survey within the North Carolina population and then a couple of focused surveys within one within a community supported fishery and one with people affiliated with the Core Sound Museum, which is a cultural heritage museum here in Carteret County. And so far, what we have seen is that people, consumers do indicate a pretty strong preference for wild caught seafood. And that's across species. Interesting. Which is really interesting to think about as it relates to the, you know, state's agenda for growth of the industry. Does that actually match what consumers are looking for and want to be eating? Another thing it found is that people are not really consuming oysters that regularly. Mm -hmm. Um, Tuna, shrimp, and salmon sort of always top the list of what people are eating regularly. That's not to say oysters aren't a really important food, but it is, it gives us things to think about in terms of what where consumer demand is. Um, And then it also showed that though people have strong preferences for wild caught food, they also are open to mariculture growth and see it as a, a viable industry, but they indicated concern for protecting small family businesses that ranked much higher than I personally expected it to in the general public's Uh, statements of what they're concerned with as the industry grows and environmental sustainability ranked highly as far as concerns. And then some members of the survey, particularly those affiliated with the coast and that cultural heritage museum expressed a lot of concern about protecting coastal heritage. And so it, the, the results didn't show that people are opposed to oyster aquaculture or growth of the industry, but it showed that there is concern for it being managed in such a way that uh, small business owners and community members can still thrive as that new business unfolds. Interesting. Thank you. Speaking of uh, small farms, small communities, um, I've had the pleasure of visiting the Duke Marine Lab Oyster Farm and harvesting my own oysters and eating them, sound to seaside grill, if you will. Um, Laura, could you tell us more about the Duke Oyster Farm? and the goals of that operation and your research with the farm. Sure, yeah. So like you were saying, the Duke Oyster Farm or the Aqua Farm as we tend to call it, is um, a very small scale operation. We don't even operate on a half an acre. Um, But because we are so small scale, we are really prioritizing, encouraging the undergraduates and the other students who are down here at the coast for such a short time to kind of experience how this aquaculture occurs and what work goes into it to help them kind of broaden their broaden their ideas of where their seafood comes from and what it can be done with it. And so that's kind of the overarching goal of why it was established. But since it's been established, we've noticed a lot of what Carter was saying about these new oyster areas attracting a lot of uh, nursery fish and small animals and invertebrates and stuff like that. And so that's kind of led us to 
snowballing into looking at the habitat value of aquaculture and the potential for um, for it to fulfill multiple aspects of what North Carolina wants and what restoration wants. Mm-hmm. And so we're attacking it from that angle. Very cool. And then your research specifically with eDNA, is there anything exciting that you're honed in on right now, like a specific species that's popped up, maybe you didn't expect to see at the oyster farm or? Um, not, not quite yet, unfortunately. We're still really in the early stages of it, but we are really enjoying how we can use environmental DNA, which is shed cells that animals and all sorts of other living organisms shed through growth, through mucus, through eating, anything like that. And so it's allowing us to identify who's been there and hopefully how recently. That's what we're working on right now anyway. And so we've found a very diverse assortment of animals who've been living near our oyster aquaculture. And so we're hoping that we can connect that to restored habitat and natural reefs as well and see how similar they're going to be. Super neat. So kind of being able to quantify the ecological benefits of mariculture, if you will. Yeah, quantify is maybe too specific. <laughs> a high aspiration? <laughs> yeah, maybe more qualified. Okay. Yeah. Um, and we're looking especially at different functional groups and whether or not they're present and in what seasons. Cool. Thank you. Um, Carter, I'd love to come back to you and ask you, as a living shoreline practitioner, is there anything you're specifically super excited about with the development of oyster mariculture in North Carolina or anything you maybe have questions about, just sort of what your opinion as a professional um, restoring habitat is? Sure. So I think maybe first to piggyback on something that Laura alluded to, I think something that could be very interesting looking to the future is thinking about what ways there are synergies between aquaculture and restoration and what ways there are going to be conflicts between aquaculture and restoration. Um, So for instance, a potential conflict when we're thinking about living shorelines is if that oyster reef is an integral piece of your shoreline protection structure, um, then you could see why actually harvesting those oysters could be really damaging um, to, you know, something that maybe a private homeowner has actually invested in. Um, And so in that sense, there can be this conflict between that restoration of an oyster reef and any kind of um, harvest of oysters. Uh, But on a more positive side, I think there's potentially some opportunities in the future to use aquaculture oysters to seed restoration projects. Um, And so if we can't find a market for all of the oysters that are being grown to actually use those oysters in restoration projects, um, but without being you know, very familiar with the management and policy regulations here in North Carolina um, or really throughout the country, um, because I would imagine it's different state by state. I'm pretty sure in North Carolina, you're not actually allowed to do that right now. Um, So there are some sort of uh, management hurdles that need to be overcome to even start to assess the feasibility of using aquaculture oysters in restoration. Interesting. I hadn't even thought of that. So you could have like your oyster farms that are your fancy oysters that are going to go to your oyster in the half shell restaurants and then your oysters that are going to be your sturdy um, restoration oysters that are going to help you adapt to rising sea level and climate change. That's really neat. Yeah, potentially. So for instance, 
Um, some studies have shown that naturally oysters are more likely to settle out of the water column. So these would be wild spat oysters if there are other live oysters in the area. And so presumably there could be a benefit then of, you know, seeding some restoration material with some either aquaculture, you know, juvenile oysters or even adult oysters, because it might actually encourage recruitment of natural oysters in those settings. Um, yeah, so that's one potential application. Thank you. At this moment, I'd love to ask if there's anything any of you would like to add about your predictions for the industry or your hopes and dreams for the future of oyster aquaculture. I would just add that in personal talks, so not scientifically, with other aquaculture farmers in this area and up the coast, it is a priority for them to have sustainable aquaculture and to avoid adding anything negative to the environment, whether that's plastics, which a lot of people that I've talked to have talked about, or whether that's, you know, negative impacts from releasing genetic material or anything like that in the area. And so I think there's definitely the possibility moving forward for us to kind of merge all these things together and have much more positive impact on aquaculture, be able to work with aquaculture growers to do so in a way that's good for ecology and the economy. Yeah, I'll just add that what sort of the lens that I approach my own dissertation research from is thinking about the lessons that aquaculture can learn from agriculture. Mm-hmm. And I think about this in terms of our terrestrial food system has had a long history of seeing what happens as we sort of prioritize economic development and efficiency. And the results tend to be corporate consolidation and environmental degradation and inequitable access to food. Mm -hmm. And so we have a real opportunity here as we grow this new part of our food system to think about what we need to learn and how we might do this differently. And we have seen response to that and policy. I mean, in the core sound, when the community came out against the leases, the state put a moratorium on leasing in that space. It's stopped happening. We have seen places that have allowed for corporate takeover of aquaculture farms. And we've seen places that specifically have policy in place to prevent that. And so there's a lot of different ways to do it. And I think as long as we are attentive to community needs and values, there are really healthy, hopeful ways to go about this. Yeah, totally. And that's interesting, especially given what Laura said, just speaking with other aquaculturists in the area, not from a scientific perspective per se, but hearing that desire to move forward, that momentum of, of ecological benefits and and representing the community's interests at the same time. Well, it's been such a pleasure speaking with all of you today. I've had the privilege of being taught by all three of you while pursuing my master's here at Duke. So I had a hunch this would be a really cool conversation. So thank you. Thank you for joining me today on All Swell. And thank you, of course, to all of our listeners and to the American Shoreline Podcast Network and to the Coastal Society for supporting this show. Don't forget to tune in next month to hear from our co-hosts at East Carolina University, And remember, where there's a will, there's a wave.